please open your Bibles to the 34th Psalm. And while you turn there, there's one other announcement I forgot to make. Um, Carol Hardy is not here this morning. His class, his ABF class, will not be meeting in the fireside room, so we'd encourage you. It's be a great time to check out a different ABF, but Carol Hardy's class on the Psalms will not be meeting this morning. Um, you'll find the notes in the bulletin and the insert, and on the back of the insert, you'll find the text, Psalm 34, if you don't have a Bible with you. I'd like to begin by reading Psalm 34 in its entirety. Psalm 34, and this is one of those examples where the psalm titles are particularly significant. One of 14 psalms where the title links to a specific event in David's life. So Psalm 34. Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried. The Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see, the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O oh children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous, his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. None of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Oh, Lord God, it is our desire to extol you and to praise you, our desire that our hearts would imitate David's, that we would rejoice in your salvation, that we would be those who seek you, who hope in you, who fear you, and you would be the one who delivers us, who rescues us, who preserves us, who hears us, who answers us, who saves and delivers us. And in that way, we receive the blessing and you receive the glory. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you look at the notes, you'll notice that about half of what we're going to be doing this morning is not actually looking at Psalm 34, but at 1 Samuel 21. The reason for that, and don't turn to 1 Samuel just yet, is because not only does this psalm specifically reference the events of 1 Samuel 21, 
But another psalm that we'll be studying in just about a month, Mitchell McClure will be preaching at the end of June when Daniel and I go to Camp Apennus. And if you look at the psalm title of Psalm 56, which will be the psalm that Mitchell teaches, this is why, again, the psalm titles are important. And I believe Psalm 56's title begins, A Mitcom of David When the Philistines Seized Him in Gath. It's the same event. So two psalms, there's only 14 in the Psalter that link to specific events. Two psalms link to these events. These are not events that I think are terribly well known. And so both to set up this psalm and to set up Mitchell's psalm, I think it's worth our time to spend looking a little bit to set this context up. David thinks, God, in inspiring his word, thinks that understanding the backdrop of this psalm will help us understand its content. So we're going to look at Psalm 34 over two weeks, this week and next week, and we're going to spend some extended time looking at the events of 1 Samuel. So now, if you'd be so kind as to turn back to 1 Samuel. In fact, I think we'll actually go all the way back to chapter 17 as we sort of move briefly through this. We're going to look at the psalm in three points. First, David's terror when he changed his appearance. Second, David's testimony, how the Lord delivered him. And then David's teaching, fear and take refuge in him. And so the backdrop of this psalm is a time of immense terror and fear in David's life. You wouldn't necessarily pick that up from the joyful nature of this psalm. Its counterpart, Psalm 56, emphasizes more that when I'm afraid, I trust in you, and that the fear motif is brought out more clearly. It's here as well. But I want you to understand that the backdrop of this is David in terror. Now, in um, 1 Samuel chapter 17 is when David fights Goliath. This is when David comes to the forefront. Uh, the first early chapters of 1 Samuel deal with Samuel's ministry, and then the rise of Saul, and now the rise of David. And David comes out, he slays the giant. And then, um, in chapter 18, a song is written about this event. This song is going to cause some trouble for David. It's the first hit single in the Bible. It actually has, we'll see, it has dance moves that go with it. I mean, you think of some of those, this, this, the Philistines have heard this and they know the moves. This is, this is a number one single with a bullet. Verse 7, the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed David ten thousands and to me, they've ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And then you get this, this phrase. I love the way this is coined. And Saul eyed David from that day on. And Saul sees that David is blessed, that he's operating the power of the Spirit. Verse 10, the very next verse. The next day, a harmful spirit from the Lord rushed upon Saul. So Saul is being tormented. David is being blessed. And so Saul begins to try to get David killed. And he does it first subtly. He sends David off on raiding parties to fight the Philistines, hoping the Philistines will do it for him. But he keeps being victorious, which actually makes things worse. Because, of course, people love a victor. They love a winner. David's becoming popular. He's notably popular for killing the giant Goliath. Now he is winning raid after raid. And so in chapter 19 of 1 Samuel, Saul becomes a bit more overt. 
Pick it up in verse 9. Actually, pick it up in verse 8. Then there was war again. David went out, fought with the Philistines, and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. So another victory of David. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul, and he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall. So this is an overt act against David, but it's not public. Because if you're the king and you want to take out a public, popular hero, that's a bold move. So, so Saul here, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an act of um, sort of impetus and rage, tries to spear David, he flees. And David has a hard time believing that Saul is really after him. We'll see that. He t- thinks maybe Saul wasn't a bad move, because David then goes home. His wife is Saul's daughter, Michal. Michal, um, let's look at verse 11. Um, Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him. that He might kill him in the morning, but Michal, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape your life tonight, tomorrow, you'll be killed. So Michal let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. And he escapes to Ramah with Samuel. Um, and so look at verse 18. Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah. And he's safe there as Saul sends delegations, but as they approach Ramah, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon these delegations, and they just start prophesying. Saul himself comes... <clears throat> Um, look at verse uh, 23. He went there to Naoth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also, and he went and he prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah, and he too stripped off his clothes, and he prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets. So now Saul is beginning to overtly pursue David. He's sending out military task force, first to McCall's, David's house, and now up to Ramah, then David flees from Naoth in Ramah to Jonathan, and he's perplexed. Now, David will spend years on the run from Saul, but you've got to understand, this is the beginning of his fleeing from Saul. This is the beginning of Saul trying to persecute him and, and kill him. And he goes to Jonathan in verse 1, um, and he says, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? Um, so... I think David actually wants to stand before Saul. We're going to see in a few minutes David is without weapons. He's without food. He doesn't have any men with him. I think he's coming, hopefully, hoping to gain um, an audience with Saul and say, hey, look, what have I done? Why have I offended you to plead his innocence? Jonathan says, let me go check with my dad and see where things are at. When Jonathan goes and he pleads for David, Saul picks up a spear and tries to impale him with it. Which again shows that the madness of sin, that Saul's reason, stated reason for trying to kill David is that he might give the kingdom to his son, Jonathan, whom he just tried to kill with a spear. Um, so you read that in verse 30 of chapter 20. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. And Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And so David waits in a field for three days, and Jonathan comes back, and they have this, this coded signal 
He sends a signal. You need, you need to flee. They talk. David, you need to get out of here. And look at 21. David came up to, to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. So David is now, this is his, his third move. He flees from his home with his wife Michal to Samuel and Ramah. He flees from Ramah to meet with Jonathan, and now he goes to Ahimelech, the priest at Nob. He thinks maybe he'll be safe here. This is where the priest, remember the ark has yet to have a home, so the priests are functioning here at Nob. David came to Nob to Ahimelech, the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, why are you alone and no one with you? He can tell something's up. Maybe he's caught wind of the fact that David has fallen out of favor. Maybe he's even heard that Saul is attempting to kill him, that something might be up. And so he, he's troubled. And David tells him this flimsy story. The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything about the matter with which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with young men for such and such a place. Now then go and um, do you have on hand, give me five. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest said to David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is the holy bread. So David makes up this flimsy story. I'm on a secret mission. I had to leave quickly, couldn't take any belongings. I'm meeting up with the you know, SEAL Team 6, and we're going to go do a raid, something like that. But I got nothing. What do you have? David said to the priest, truly, um, so the priest says, I've, I don't have common bread, but there is a holy bread. The priest offers David the showbread. Um, and uh, he basically says, but you have to have kept yourself clean. And David answered the priest, truly, women have been kept from us, as always, when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when in this ordinary journey. How much more today will our vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread. There is no bread but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day that is taken away. Now, the point here is simply this. The priest would not have done this unless it was a desperate situation. The law would allow for this. The priest recognizes. So David's not just a little hungry. He is famished. He needs this food. It's desperate. The priest recognizes it, gives it to him. And then David asked for some more help. The priest gave him the holy bread. Um, there was no bread. So in verse 7, a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained for the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsman, probably there delivering um, animals to be slaughtered. This is not a good guy. In fact, a few chapters later, um, he's going to tell Saul about the help that Ahimelech gives David. And Saul will come there and order his men to kill Ahimelech, and they won't dare strike down the priests of the Lord, but Doeg will. And Doeg's going to kill Ahimelech. He's going to kill all the priests at Nob. He's going to kill the town there. And David's going to write Psalm 52 about this wicked man, Doeg. But the point for us is this. David, in seeing Saul's chief herdsman, recognizes, I'm not even safe here. Saul's spies, Saul's people will surely tell him that I'm here. So he can't stay here. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. You will take that, take it. There is none but that here. And David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. Um, so he is given the showbread and, here's your blank, Goliath's sword. That is significant. So David 
is almost certainly either totally alone. He, the reference to the men who are kept themselves clean for the bread, I think, references the men he claims he's meeting up with. There might be some small group of people with him. The key is he does not have a military force with him. He's not commanding a group of soldiers. He claims to be meeting up with them. So David is virtually alone or alone entirely. He's unarmed and he's hungry. He's, he's in desperate circumstances. And he's given the showbread and he's given Goliath's sword. And then he flees from there. And I want you to get, because psychologically, he's just been on the run. He, he has to be let out a window from his house. He goes and he hides out with Samuel up in Ramah. Flees from there to a field where he meets with Jonathan. Flees from there to Ahimelech at Nob. And now... Verse 10, David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. You probably don't know where Gath is, but if you've been reading 1 Samuel, if we've been going verse by verse through 1 Samuel, you'd recognize the name of Gath. Turn back to chapter 17, because I think the reader is supposed to pick up on how desperate David has to be, because trust me, for David to go to Gath is a desperate move. I wonder who else is from Gath. 1 Samuel 17.4, there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath. So David has killed Goliath, has the sword of Goliath with him, and he flees to Gath. That is a desperate move. And he recognizes he's not safe in Israel. The king is hunting him. The king has now moved to overt strikes. He's sending people out. He's not being subtle anymore. Even at the, where the priests are is one of Saul's men. So, not, so uh, Gath is, is basically a border city of the Philistines. In fact, if you keep reading here in chapter 17, when they routed the Philistines after, um, after the Goliath is killed... Look at uh, verse 52. Um, the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. So just recently, David has killed their great champion, their hometown hero, which resulted in a routing of the Philistines that they were driven all the way to the gates of this city. You can imagine widows if the men who died in that conflict are in Gath, you can imagine the bitterness and the anger about their, their lost champion. David flees to Gath. Now, it either indicates that he is so frightened he's not thinking clearly, or he is thinking clearly, and he just thinks, I've got a better chance here than I do taking on Saul in his home territory. Because at least Saul is not going to go here. The last time there was military conflict, they weren't able to penetrate into Gath. They weren't able to go further than that. So at least it represents a place beyond Saul's immediate reach. But all of that demonstrates the, the tremendous pressure David is under, which then sets up the events of the psalm title. Verse 11 of chapter 21. The servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David, the king of the land, did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. This, this, this hit song was so big it crossed culturally boundaries. I mean, this, like, we know like hit singles that cross over from country to rock. This is like an Israelite song that even the Philistines know and they know the dance moves and they recognize it. 
David is 10,000. So look at verse 12. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So whatever David thought was going to happen, whatever he hoped was going to happen, it wasn't this. And all of a sudden, he's in this city. It's got gates. And he's recognized. And he is terrified. Um, Gath is the hometown of Goliath. He is recognized and taken captive. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gates and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Akish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Now, it's important at this point, by following the narrative, we understand what to make of this. This is not, we're not supposed to conclude that conniving, wily, clever David. This is a brilliant, te- this, is, this is a last-ditch ploy. This is a desperate act. It is a stupid strategy. I mean, it's absolutely a foolish strategy. I mean, you're, you're, you've got Goliath's sword. You're in Goliath's hometown. They recognize you. I'll pretend I'm crazy. I mean, this is, even if they buy it, wouldn't David's head on a pike still be a valuable prize? Wouldn't it be a way of recovering their honor? Wouldn't it be a way of showing the man who killed Goliath we killed? I mean, I, I don't think we're supposed to conclude, man, David is brilliant. This is meant to be the, the last ditch, desperate act of a desperate man. And what's amazing is it works. That's the context of Psalm 34. Psalm 34 is not, man, I'm really clever and I'm really smart and thankfully the Lord gave me the wisdom to come up with this shrewd plan. Psalm 34 is, the Lord delivered me. This poor man cried out to God. God delivered him. He's seeing in this the deliverance of God. This is not a smart play. This is just an act of desperation on David's part. Let me read to you um, from a commentator, Dale Ralph Davis, about this. You may look at 1 Samuel 21, 10 to 15 and wonder, can anything good come out of Gath? Here is David, foolish, desperate, confused. Ah, but this is the stuff Psalms are made of. So David does not say, I'm lucky, but God is for me. He sees men not as frightful, but as flesh. His deliverance from all his fears and all his troubles is the pledge that Yahweh will follow suit for other believers. And on the basis of his continuing praise, along with desperation, there is nevertheless praise. So this is the context. David is driven uh, driven to, to this desperate move. He's been on the run. He's terrified. He, he, he does the only thing he can think of doing. He's caught. He, begins to, he just humiliates himself. I mean, this is the king, the man who will be the king of Israel, publicly acting mad, letting spittle and drool run down his face. He's making marks on the gates. I don't know if he's like making graffiti or biting it or I don't know what. And somehow, somehow Akish is fooled and lets David depart. And David writes this psalm and he writes Psalm 56 about that event. That's, that's the backdrop. Um, that's the backdrop of, of Psalm 34. So now turn back to, to Psalm 34. And let's read this in light of that. David is at the end of his rope. A long series of flights and fleeing, terror and fear. And against all odds, he, he goes free. 
this, this, this silly um, ploy of pretending he's mad actually works. He's got Goliath's sword on him, and yet somehow they let him go. And on that basis, he says, I will bless the Lord of all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. And he delivered me from all my fears. Those who look on him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. And we'll just hopefully get that far this morning. Um, so let's now look at David's testimony, how the Lord delivered him. It begins in the first three verses with his exuberant praise. His exuberant praise. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be on my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord of the humble here and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt his name together. Just... Two, two points I want to observe here. First, David's commitment to continual praise. Now, continual is different than continuous. Continuous is unceasing. Continual just means at all times. And so what David is saying is, I'm going to praise God at every time, not just at certain times. The equivalent for us would be, I'm going to praise God not just on Sundays and Wednesday nights, but every day and all throughout the day. Praise as God's people is not something that should be limited to a particular time or place or activity. Rather, we should be praising God in all our activities of the day. This is the New Testament equivalent of in all things that you eat or drink, do them to the glory of God. Or, as Ephesians 5.20 says, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. David as he meditates on his deliverance, commits to praise God not just at specific times and specific places, but as the, the activity of his life. Oh, bless the Lord of all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord of the humble here and be glad. Second thing I want you to notice, it begins with a personal commitment, private praise. I'm going to do this all the time and everywhere, but it doesn't stay there. Private praise. Praise should move us towards corporate praise, an invitation to corporate praise. In other words, it's great if you enjoy listening to Christian music in your car and singing. I get scared when I meet people who that they claim is their worship, and they think because they listen to sermons on their phone and they play some music in their car, the church is some optional thing. But again and always in Scripture, private praise moves and is ultimately fulfilled and culminates in corporate praise. And we get this in everyday life, right? When you see a good movie or watch an exciting sporting event or, or whatever, and you're excited and there's a praise response, you're talking about it and it's, it pleases you, you want to find other people to talk about it, right? I'm guessing a lot of you have seen the most recent Marvel movie. And I'm guessing that many of you, after seeing it, were looking for other people. Have you seen it? So you could talk about it. Because when you enjoy something, when it pleases you, when you've seen some evidence of glory or some good thing, you naturally want to seek out others who saw the same glory. You want to talk about it. If you see a, a tremendous game, you want to find, did you see the game last night? I, I can't relate to that as much, but I've heard others 
In fact, the natural fulfillment of worship and private worship and praise is to find others. And so David can't just say, I'm just going to privately do this. He's, he's inviting others to worship with him. His, his personal commitment to praise moves towards corporate praise. Because, point one, God intends his blessings to be heralded. God intends his blessings to be heralded. God has done a great saving work for David. Against all odds, against all expectations, David's feigning at madness works. He gets away to fight another day. And David understands that God has not done that work of salvation and grace simply for his sake alone, but so that others can be encouraged. And so David repeats it and tells of it. God intends for his blessings to be heralded. Now, this evidences some humility on David's part, which is ironic because a lot of times the reasons why we give for not telling others about God's goodness in our life is not wanting to sound arrogant or proud. I I, I think actually the exact opposite. Our pride limits us from talking about God's goodness and blessings because if God blessed us, implicitly we needed help. I mean, think about this. David, probably as king is giving this psalm for Israel's corporate worship, reminding them all about the time when he was so desperately afraid he pretended he was mad. That's not a very dignified thing for a king to confess. He refers to himself as this poor man, verse 6. So the only way David can give God the glory for the salvation that God gave is to humble himself. I was in desperate circumstances. I was terrified at my wit's end, and God delivered me. So it takes humility on David's part to herald what God has done. If, has God done some mighty work for you? Please do not, in mock humility, not share that. That's how God intends for us to encourage each other. Um, pa- pause here. Turn to, turn to Hebrews chapter 10. This is one of the main reasons we gather together. It's for us to, to tell each other of God's faithfulness and goodness in our lives. If God has blessed you, he means for you to share it. He means for you to tell others. And yes, that may mean humbling yourself. Hebrews 10, verse 23, let us... Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day dawning, drawing near. We gather to encourage each other. What more encouraging thing can you do than to tell somebody, hey, let me tell you about how good God is how good God was to me. Because that's the move as we shift now to David's testimony. Um, first in verses 4 through 5. Let me read a quote to you. It's from Derek Kidner. If the sequence of verses 2 to 3 was in essence, I have reason to praise the Lord, come join me. If that was the logic of the first three verses, then the logic of verses 4 through 5 is this. This is my experience. It can be yours too. Look at verses 4 through 5. I sought the Lord. He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. And now he takes his own personal experience and applies it in general to everyone. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. 
In fact, it's, it's the second half of the psalm where he does more teaching. He's taking his own personal experience of deliverance and he's saying, you too can participate in this. You too can experience God's deliverance. He's teaching from it. Um, his first testimony, verses 4 through 5. Oh, sorry, I've skipped over one blank. God intends for his blessings to be heralded. And humility rejoices in the blessings of another. Humility rejoices in blessings of another. David identifies, let the humble hear and be glad. Now, maybe the other reason we sometimes um, think we don't want to share God's blessing, we don't want it to all be about us. And just because I've been blessed, in fact, sometimes we can fear, and even sometimes rightly so, that God's blessing in our lives actually might discourage someone else. I mean, isn't that a shame? But that, that can be the case. You ever been afraid of telling somebody in the body of Christ about God's blessings to you for fear they may be envious, jealous? Well, why doesn't God do that for me? The humble will hear and rejoice. That's what David says. Let the humble hear and be glad. This psalm is realistic that there are many afflictions of the righteous. Many of them. I mean, look, look, look at verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. And sharing your deliverance, you might be talking to somebody who's not delivered yet. But humility rejoices in the blessing of someone else because humility knows it's not all about me. And I can be reminded of the God I serve in hearing and his faithfulness in your life, even if I am not currently experiencing that same blessing. So don't, don't, let fear, don't let your own false humility stop you from declaring God's goodness to others. And don't let fear that actually it might discourage others. And, and if you hear God's blessing in someone else's life, guard yourself from that envy. If you find your heart not rejoicing in the goodness of God in another, something is wrong, humble yourself. The humble, he says, hear and are glad. So then we move to David's testimony. We move to David's testimony. We are not going to get through all these notes, but that is fine. Um, his first testimony. He says, he sought the Lord who faithfully delivered him. He sought the Lord who faithfully delivered them. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Now this phrase, I sought the Lord, I'll quote Gerald Wilson here. The term translated as sought is never used of someone seeking someone or something whose location is unknown. Okay, what that means is it's not as though God's hidden somewhere and we've got to go find him. Maybe he's over here. Maybe he's over there. Maybe he's over there. We'll start searching and hopefully we'll figure out where he is. That's not the idea. When one seeks God in this fashion, he writes, one does so fully aware of where he is. It is seeking either a restored relationship from him or more commonly information or guidance or direction from him. Such seeking is serious, purposeful searching, not confused wandering or wondering. Seeking God involves humbling yourself, cultivating the fear of him in you. Listen to what he writes in Deuteronomy. From there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart, with all your soul. Seeking God is basically a way of saying it was not some casual, fleeting reaching out to God, but a, a purposeful, devoted, and intense stopping and seeking after God. David sought the Lord. The Lord answered me and delivered me from all my fears. 
And, that, and that's really the emphasis in this thing of David's fear. And, that, and again, this word for fear is a strong word akin to terror. Um, not the fear of the Lord type of fear, but more dread. It could either mean the events that are dreaded or the dread itself. And probably it's the latter here since the former is covered in the troubles of verse 6, writes Derek Kidner. So David had fears, and he sought God in his fears, and the Lord delivered him from his fears. So despite the, the tenor of joy, the exuberant excitement of this psalm, David's confessing that he was terrified. And God, in his terror, delivered him, and now he is rejoicing. His face is radiant. He sought the Lord. Those who look to him are radiant and confident. That's the next blanks. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed, even when their faces are covered with spittle running down their beards. I understand what David's saying. He, he was ashamed in one sense. He acted shamefully. He humiliated himself in front of his enemies. And yet he says, those who fear God, those who look to him are radiant, their faces shall never be ashamed. There's some irony here. It doesn't mean that we won't go through difficult times. It doesn't mean we won't experience those. David, the record of this event records David acting in a way that is, in some respects, shameful. But not before God, not in his light. Those who look to him are radiant, and confident. And let's just briefly look at verses 6 to 7, and then we'll sing our final song and be done. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. And again, David is using his own personal experience to extrapolate to the experience of all of those who fear God. Um, he does that in verse 4. I sought the Lord, which leads in verse 5 to... Those who look to him are radiant. Then in verse 6, this poor man cried. The Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. The angel of the Lord camps around those. So again, David's moving from this is what happened to me. It could happen to you. The key here is looking to God, seeking God, fearing God, crying to God. God nowhere is David doing things for God. I mean... The, the, the New Testament salvation that Paul unpacks of grace through faith, apart from works, is the same thing here. The keys to receiving God's blessing here are the keys of crying out. Can you cry out for help? God can help you. Can you seek God? Can you look to him? Can you fear him? Those are the conditions for blessing. In some respects, recognize your poverty. Recognize your weakness. This poor man cried, the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Now, the angel of the Lord is mentioned here, and he's only mentioned in one other psalm in Psalm 35. I don't have time to unpack who I believe the angel of the Lord is, but you, you want the angel of the Lord defending you because the angel of the Lord can and is the enemy of God's enemies. Look at, look at the angel of the Lord in Psalm 35 where we read, um, where is it, verses 5 and 6. Let them be like chaff before the wind, with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let the way be dark and slippery, with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. So the angel of the Lord will either be fighting 
destroying the wicked, or protecting and defending. Um, Those who look to God are radiant. They're, They're calm, they're confident, and they are secure. That's David's testimony. So David is taking an embarrassing, frightening event of his life. Probably one of his lowest points. And you remember his wife, McCall, ridicules him for humbling himself and dancing in front of the ark? That was nothing. If only she'd known about this. And yet David recounts this and links this psalm for all of Israel. Hey, remember that time, guys? Remember that time when I pretended I was mad? And somehow I managed to escape. God was with me and for me. And if you fear him, if you seek him, if you look to him, he will be with you and for you as well. That's what David is doing here. And I'll pick this up next week um, as, we, as we go further with it. But I just want to encourage you. Um, God is for those who fear him. This psalm ultimately will find its fulfillment in Christ. Uh, the second half of the psalm is quoted in the New Testament, um, specifically um, in First Peter and in John. So let's close in prayer and song about trusting God. I'm going to call the worship team up and I'm going to pray. Lord God, Lord, when we are afraid, give us the faith and the grace to look to you, to trust in you, and not to look to our own wisdom and our own strength for deliverance. Lord, when we are in terrors, when we are at the end of our rope, cause us to turn to you. Let us experience your goodness. Let us taste and see that you are good. And Lord God, um, this side of the cross, we, we know that you are our deliverer. And we know that you redeem those who trust in you. So Lord God, we rejoice and we sing with great joy that when we are afraid, we trust in you.